Good morning to everyone on this uh, beautiful day that the Lord has made. Today we are celebrating what is called Palm Sunday, the day of the Lord Jesus' triumphant entry into the city of Jerusalem. This is the joyous apparition of Zion's king. And we have the account registered in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 21, where it says, Now when they drew near Jerusalem and came to Bethpage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Loose them, loose them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. So the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them. They brought the donkey and the colt, laid their clothes on them, and set him on them. And a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road. Others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Then the multitudes who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. <clears throat> Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? So the multitude said, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. This account gives us the fulfilling of one of the most amazing, most extraordinary prophecies in recorded in the Old Testament. Uh, in the book of Zechariah, uh, which is quoted here by Matthew and also by John. Uh, this, uh, this prophecy, as I said, is one of the most extraordinary prophecies ever pronounced with regards to the Messiah, the Savior of the world. We see its fulfillment both here in Matthew and in John, though the event of his triumphal entry into Jerusalem is registered in the four Gospels. The people's acclamation fulfilled the words of Zechariah 9.9 and also the ones from Psalm 118, verse 26, where it says, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This prophecy in the Psalms being older than the one in Zechariah. The Lord's royal office is frequently mentioned in the scriptures, and it is symbolized by uh, Melchizedek, David, and Solomon, all of them kings. This is why he is called the king of glory. He's called king of Israel and king of kings. Through David, he says, I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion in Psalm 2, verse 6. The prophet Jeremiah says of him, A king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. The Lord, our righteousness, is his name in Jeremiah 23, verses 5 and 6. 
And last but not least, Zechariah, through the prophet, prophetic lens, says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. We see here, first of all, the royal office of the Redeemer. There are four ideas associated with royalty. First of all, royalty possesses supreme dignity. A king is considered the head of a nation. The Lord is the head of his spiritual empire. Men have been exalted in God's word and in his service to him, such such as Moses, Elijah, Solomon, Daniel, and others. But Jesus is the Lord of that house where Moses was a servant. For it says in the book of Hebrews, For this one has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, meaning Jesus, inasmuch as he who built the house has more honor than the house. And Moses indeed was faithful in all his house as a servant, but Christ as a son over his house, whose house we are. Hebrews 3, 3 and 5 and 6. Jesus is the Lord of that house where Moses was a servant and a faithful servant at that. He is Elijah's Lord and he is greater than Solomon. All honor and glory belong to him. He is over everyone and everything. He is the fairest over all the children of men and greater than the angels. In everything, he has the preeminence, as we are told by the Apostle Paul. He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence, Colossians 1, 18. Not only does he possess supreme authority uh, or supreme dignity, but also legislative authority. He has the right to establish laws for the ruling of his kingdom. For this reason, the Father declared from heaven, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. In Matthew 17, 5, during the Lord's transfiguration. His Sermon on the Mount gave evidence of his authority time and again. For he says time and again, But I say unto you, you have heard that this and this was said by them of old, but I say unto you. And he says it repeatedly in Matthew 5, verses 21 through 44. Also, the people were astonished because he spoke with authority. And God's word tells us also that the Father loves the Son and that all authority has been given me. The Lord says, right before his ascension, in heaven and on earth. He has legislative authority. Now, not only only does he have supreme dignity and legislative authority, but he also has, possesses unlimited wealth. Jesus, as king, is the Lord and proprietor of all things. He is the ruler of the universe. All the riches of nature and glory are his. 
His treasuries are unlimited, inexhaustible, and they are eternal. So we see that he has supreme dignity, legislative authority, unlimited wealth, and also as a king, he has universal dominion. A king by right and name without subjects is nothing more than a shadow. Christ's absolute reign extends to the highest heaven and to the lowest hell and to the whole of the universe. But in his character as mediator, he has dominion over his church, for he dwells in her, administers all her affairs, receives her homage, subdues his, her enemies, enlarges her parameters, and will continue doing it till he returns, when his kingdom shall fill the whole earth. Also now we see the particular features of his character. We don't see him only as a king, but as a person. First of all, he is just, which means he is righteous. He is personally immaculate, made in likeness of sinful flesh, but holy and without spot. His life was a display of this. His enemies confirmed it even. Judas said, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. Pilate's wife called him that just man, meaning that righteous man. And Pilate himself said, I am innocent of the blood of this just or righteous person. Even his enemies acknowledge his purity. His death was a display of justice. He died to justify the law. He was the only one that kept the whole law. His kingdom and his spiritual laws are all based on justice. His kingdom is justice, peace, joy, and other things. He makes just all his subjects. We have been made righteous not by our, not by our own righteousness, but by his righteousness by faith. Not only we see that he is just, but he is also meek and lowly. We see his humble estate. His home, though of high origin, they were descendants of King David. Yet it was poor and humble. His birthplace, Bethlehem, an insignificant town at the time. His disciples were all from the populace. They were common people. The people he associated with, the lowest, the rejects of society. He associated with harlots and publicans and sinners. And the religious people of his day were scandalized by this. But he came to seek and to save that which was lost. And that's why he also says, Come unto me, all you who work and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly of heart, and you shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, this also is illustrated in the case when the text was fulfilled. He came riding on a donkey, 
into the uh, city of Jerusalem. Now, this is very meaningful for the Lord, the Lord God had forbidden the introduction of horses in Judea in order to avoid their training for war and this way trust in themselves. That's why King David penned the words in Psalm 20, verse 7, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. Psalm 20, verse 7. David wrote the psalm, but then his son, Solomon, was the first to introduce horses in Judea. For that reason, Christ didn't come riding on a, uh, a chariot or a war horse. For kings in those times who came riding on a horse, they came in as a sign of war. Uh, he came riding on a donkey as a sign of humility and peace. He is just, it says, again, righteous, having salvation and lowly. The salvation he was bringing was not to free the people from the Roman yoke but from the yoke of sin and its horrible wages. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. He came to save us from the yoke of sin, the yoke of Satan, the yoke of hell, the yoke of death, and to give us forgiveness of sins and eternal life. But they missed this. And they, were, they totally misunderstood him. They expected the Messiah to come and free them from the Roman yoke. No, he came to do something greater than that. He came to rid them of sin. And he died on the cross for that very reason. So not only is he just and he's meek and lowly, but he also, it says there that he brings salvation. This was his great design. His principal object was this, to bring salvation. That's why before his birth, the angel told Joseph, you shall call his name Jesus, which means God is my salvation, for he shall save his people from their sins. He did not come to condemn, but to save the world from their diseases. Uh, from their demonic possessions and the guilt and condemnation of sin, having salvation in himself and in himself alone. And a salvation that is given abundantly and freely to everyone that wants it. The most famous verse in the Bible, perhaps, is John 3.16. And we all very often quote that verse. But it is interesting to also note the following verse. In verse 16, we, we know it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Here we see God's mercy. We see his grace. And we see his love for a lost world. 
we did not go searching for God. He came searching for us. He came looking for us because he loves us. That's why he gave us his only begotten son, that whosoever, that's a very broad word, whosoever, it includes anyone who wants to. If the whole human race today wanted to be saved, there is ample provision for their salvation. For God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So many people sometimes say, why doesn't God do something about it? Well, he has. He has given us his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. The problem is not God doing something about it. The problem is you doing something about it, people doing something about it. And what we need to do is to repent of our sin and trust in him as our Lord and Savior. He is the only Savior, for he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but through me. And he also, the Bible also tells us that there is no there is salvation in no other. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved than the name of Jesus. So he is the Savior, the only Savior that he came to save you and me from our sin and give us eternal life. Thirdly, we see the glad reception we should give him. Uh, first of all, we must rejoice in his equity and justice. He will fulfill his word and all his promises. You can rest assured that if he already fulfilled all the promises regarding his first coming, he is also going to fulfill all the promises regarding his second coming. God, he said it, he said it so clearly when he was on this earth. He said, Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away till every jot and every tittle be fulfilled. We must rejoice in his equity and justice. And we also, we must rejoice in his humility. He will not despise the poor and needy. People many times despise those who are not like them, who are different, or who are not of the social status they belong to. Uh, they despise, they belittle people, they even criticize people, and, and we do all kinds of negative things to each other. But the Lord doesn't do that, because it says in the book of Isaiah, a bruised reed he will not break, and a smoking flax he will not quench. That talks to us about his gentleness. He will bring forth justice for truth. In Isaiah 42, 3, he does not reject anyone who comes to him. And he says it clearly, all that the Father gives me shall come unto me. And he who comes unto me, I will in no wise cast out. I'm so glad the Lord did not cast me out he accepted me just as I am, as the song says. So also we must rejoice in that he has salvation. Do people rejoice when a liberator comes to free them from the oppressor? Of course they do. 
He came to proclaim liberty to the captives and to the opening of the prison to those who are bound in Isaiah 61.1. Does a patient rejoice when an infallible doctor comes near? Of course he does. There's hope. Does the prodigal rejoice when he hears the father's forgiving voice? Of course he does. There is hope. But sadly, we see here in our text in Matthew that the multitudes that rejoiced when he entered Jerusalem very soon followed their high priest demanding his crucifixion. So those who praised him on Sunday and they said, Hosanna to the highest, they were crying four days later, crucify him. However, one day soon he will fulfill another of Zechariah's prophecies when he returns. They will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for his firstborn. The words of Zechariah chapter 12 verse 10. That day, first of all, the nation of Israel and then all the Gentiles will look on him whom they pierced. Some people think that only one group of people were responsible for his death. That is not true. He died for all of us. He died for the human race. Man, period. Man is the one who rejected God and they said, we don't want you ruling over us. Little did they realize that in doing that, they were fulfilling the very plan of God to bring salvation to the whole of the human race. And today there is no difference between Jew, Gentile, or any other religion. When they come to Christ, they will find salvation on an equal footing. They will look on me whom they pierce. That day, that day those alive on that day will realize who it is that they rejected. And they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for the firstborn. Finally, in truth, the Lord shall be king over all the earth. In that day, it shall be the Lord is one and his name one. Also Zechariah, this time chapter 14 and verse 9. Therefore, let us rejoice in our king. Glory to his blessed name, the name which is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. May the Lord give us joy in these gloomy times we're living in. These, these indeed are difficult times, but the Lord is greater than any disease, any problems that we can have in this world. God has a purpose in everything. And one day, one day we will go through this just like we have gone through all the other crises that come in the world. And we know that things are not going to get better in the long run. They're going to get worse, but yet they are going to get better at the end when he returns from heaven again to receive us unto himself. If you don't know Jesus as your personal Savior, I encourage you to trust him today as your Lord and Savior. 
He is ready to forgive you. And if you want, I can pray with you right now. And you may ask the Lord to come into your heart, forgive you of your sin, and save you by his redeeming, redeeming act of salvation on the cross. Father in heaven, we are so grateful for your grace, your mercy, and your sweet loving kindness. We thank you for your tender and wonderful mercies which endure forever. We thank you for giving us your only begotten Son, a Savior of our souls. We pray that, Lord, if anyone, I pray that if anyone does not know you as a Lord and Savior in their own lives, that today in their heart may ask you and say something like this, Dear Lord, I acknowledge that I'm a sinner. Thank you for dying on the cross for me. I repent of my sin. Please come into my heart and save me. Thank you for resurrecting from the dead. Thank you for your promise that anyone who calls on your name shall be saved. May you be saved today if you haven't yet. He is our hope. He is our righteousness. He is our salvation, our blessed Lord Jesus. May the Lord bless you and your family and all your loved ones till we meet again, whether down here or in heaven. I trust that we'll see each other soon by God's grace. Have a wonderful Palm Sunday and a wonderful Holy Week as we're celebrating Passover, the Resurrection Sunday. May the Lord reign supreme in your homes and especially in your hearts. I wish you all the blessings from him today in his most wonderful and precious name. Amen.